As we talk about John chapter 1 and read this passage, we're reading about the idea of beginnings and of origins. And the beginnings of things, uh, the beginning of anything is is a very important aspect of that thing. We have a hard time with this um, in our world today. You, you may have heard the phrase or the statement before, you know, who you were doesn't dictate who you are. Your past doesn't determine your future. The things you've done um, isn't who you are. It's the things you have yet to do. Uh, we like this idea, this concept. We find freedom in it because we tend to feel, especially in America, trapped if we feel like we are defined by where we come from, by the things that have already happened in our lives. But the truth is we can't really escape fully um, where we come from. I was thinking about this last night. I was talking to Ellie about even just kind of where our families come from and talking about names. And and she said she looked up our last name. And uh, I had never done this. I did not know that about what what my last name meant. My last name's Grover. I thought it was just a Sesame Street thing. And, uh, but apparently it goes back before Sesame Street, um, which, is, which was already blew my mind. Um, and um, looked up Grover, and it said it's a German uh, name, and it means quite literally uh, to dig a grave. It's a grave digger. So, yeah, you know, take that however you want it. Uh, that is what my name means. My son's going to be excited because his favorite monster truck is Grave Digger. Um, <laughs> He's going to be really pumped. Ellie was not so pumped about it. Um, and I was like, well, I can't wait to tell my parents about that one. Um, my first name, Edward, I was named after my grandfather. My, uh, my mom's dad, he had six daughters. And as I've said before, they were, they're all pretty insane. So um, he had his hands full. The good kind of crazy, but still pretty crazy, pretty nuts. And um, he had six daughters, kept trying for that boy, never got him. And then they had daughters except for me. And so there were six daughters and a bunch of granddaughters and one grandson. And so when I came along, there was no question, no doubt about it. I was going to get named after my grandpa, Ed. And so that was where my first name came from. I'm really proud of that because I really admired him and I was close with him growing up. And I like having that as part of even just my name, my background, where I come from. Um, the, the truth is, for a lot of us, we're really proud of where we're from and what has led us up to this point in our life. And for others of us, we are not happy about that. We don't take a lot of pride in that. But when we begin to read John 1 and we get to the beginning of this account of the ministry of Jesus, John starts in what he feels is the most important place, in the beginning, is what he says. Those words, literally translated, mean Genesis, the genesis of something. And you've heard them before, they're in Genesis. The first three words of the Old Testament in the beginning um, is the same first three words that we read about in the Gospel of John, in the beginning. There's a reason that he's doing this. John, in the, what's called the prologue to, to the Gospel of John, the first five verses... John is taking the first five verses of the creation account in Genesis, and he's, he's incorporating that in, saying it began with Jesus all the way back then, not just with the beginning of his ministry with people on earth or even his birth, or, which we all know that story, 
Uh, not, even, uh, not even John the Baptist's birth and um, how his parents came to be with child, which you may also know that story. He says it starts all the way further back to in the beginning, the genesis of all things, of everything. Now, what John is doing here is he is, uh, he is using a device in Jewish writing and culture called a midrash. And uh, I made this joke in the first service. I can't not make it in the second service. You know, no, a midrash is not just a rash that you get right around the midsection. Okay, there it is. Very proud of that joke. Um, thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Because it takes effort and it takes courage to make jokes like that. <laughs> you don't know how it's going to go. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> The Midrash is the retelling of an ancient text that, that, that they hold very highly, that the Jewish people would hold very highly in their history. You take an ancient text that everyone knows and cares deeply about, and you retell it, and you usually retell it with some other text informing that. You take two things and you combine them and say, what if we put these two things together? It gives us this thing called a midrash. And this is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is that very thing. And what he's done is he's taken the creation account and he's added something to it. He's added to it something that we read about in Proverbs, specifically Proverbs chapter 8, which is the idea of wisdom. Uh, and if you read Proverbs chapter 8, uh, you read about wisdom as a person because Proverbs describes wisdom not just as a way of living or a way of thinking, but as an actual person. Because how better to flush out what really wisdom is than to give it the characteristics of a human being and describe all the things that come along with that. Wisdom does this. Wisdom does that. Wisdom is spoken of as a woman and as a man. It's spoken of in a variety of different ways and and. And one of the things that we see about in Proverbs 8 is wisdom was there, it says, with God in the beginning, meaning wisdom is the word, is Jesus. I want to read you from Proverbs 8 real quick. It says this, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first beginning before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep. So we read about here in Proverbs 8, we read about wisdom, which is a person, it seems, who was with God before and when he created everything that we see. And so what John does is he takes John 1, or he takes Genesis 1, he combines it with this idea of wisdom in Proverbs 8, and that is, out of that is what we see in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and I want to I show you exactly what that means here. If you take the actual verses of Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and compare them to John 1, 1 through 5, you get verses that are talking about the same things. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what he's telling us is that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he had the Word with him. 
and the word was God, and yet the word was with God, meaning it was somehow distinct from him. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of the God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was in the beginning with God. So he being the word again. So we read about the spirit and God and the word. This is the Trinity right here. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So when God begins to create, the first thing he says is, let there be light. And we read in John that, that what happened then was that he, the word, made it. He, the word, was the one that light itself and then everything that came after was created through. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so we see even already the illustration of light and darkness bringing forth the idea of light, of life itself. Light is life. And just as there is light and darkness now, there is life, and what we'll come to see is that there is death. But that same word, that same agent that created all this stuff is also the light of men. It says, in him is life and the light of men. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So as there begins to be a separation of day and night, something that we're very familiar with in any given day that we live, there's also a separation of light and darkness. And that as the light comes into the world, the darkness has not overcome it. So creation happened, but after creation happened, sin came into the picture. Darkness enters the picture, but we read the darkness will not overcome the light. It will never get so great, it will never get so powerful, it never grow so big that it will overcome the light of the word who created. He will always, always overcome it. We read from this a couple of things. There's some things that we see. First, we see that uh, according to John, this starts all the way back in creation. And it tells us this. It says, all of us, all of what we see around us is created by God through Jesus, through the word. Every single thing was made through Jesus. My in-laws right now are building a guest house behind their house. I think they're sick of us staying with them, and so they're very nicely kind of being nice about it, but they're building a guest house, which I'm okay with. And uh, the way that they're building this guest house is they have a contractor, and he has guys that work for him. And so they meet with them every day or so, and they point to things, and they show them things, and they walk around things, and they inspect things, and then they go back in the house and go about their day, and they keep building this thing for them. I don't think there's been a point in the construction of this guest house where they've actually picked up a hammer and like done something physical because they've had someone else doing the work for them, which I'm very, very jealous of because I'm starting to realize that's an easier way to build things. And I'm starting to think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the last house that we lived in, we bought a house, and then I just redid everything in this house over like three years. Every single room, every single part of the yard, everything with my hands. 
And so all of the things that were made in that house were made through me. I had an imprint on those things. They were, I was in them. And I cared very much about all of the stuff that was done there. I was much more attached to it than I think my in-laws will be of this guest house when it's finished. You could tell the parts of it that I loved and that I took pleasure in because they turned out better. And you could tell the parts that I didn't care about and I didn't want to spend time on because they didn't turn out very well. And regardless of the fact that we don't own that house anymore, we don't live there anymore, that house will always have an imprint of the person who did the work and created it. And what we read about is that when the Father says, I want there to be light and I want there to be creation, he does it through the Son, he does it through the Word, he does it through Jesus, and because of that, everything that is created is imprinted with his mark upon it. This is why the most raw, the most untapped beauty in all of creation is absolutely breathtaking to us. It's why we look at creation itself and we just love what we're looking at. In fact, we usually want to see it in its most unchanged, untapped form. And man can do some wonderful things. Man can create and invent some great things. And we can use technology to do all kinds of cool things. But at the end of the day, None of the stuff that we can make and none of the stuff we can do, none of the stuff that we can create can hold a candle to nature and creation itself. We still ultimately long to set our eyes upon it and we find tremendous beauty in even the plainest of deserts because we see beauty in that as it is untouched, as it was created by God. There's something about the creation of God himself that is beautiful. And it is because there is inherent value in the things that he creates. And the good news about that for us is that we are part of his creation. You are part of his creation. And that means that you are beautiful and that you are incredibly significant. Simply because he made you, you are that way. And for a lot of us, we, we look in a mirror, which we don't enjoy doing, and we go, I'm not feeling that way. I don't see beauty here. I don't feel significance here. And one of the craziest things to me about Christians is that we can believe that we're created by God, a God who's really good at making things that are beautiful and that are valuable, and we can believe that even about other stuff that he makes, and yet we can have the hardest time believing that we ourselves have value and that we ourselves are beautiful because we're created by him. I look at my children, and I think they are beautiful. Now, that's easy for me. My kids are objectively really good-looking kids. Good genes. But I look at them, and I go, they're beautiful. They're wonderful. They are so valuable. That is something that a parent feels when they look at their child, is they think, you are so valuable. Not just to me, but to this world, to the rest of what is out there. And there is nothing that would make me more sad than to know that my kids don't see that because whatever group they currently happen to be surrounded by of people with a constantly changing set of values and cares and norms make them feel like they're not 
beautiful, make them feel like they're not valuable. And so what would it be like for God, the creator, to look upon his children and to see a group of people who say, I believe that you have created me and I'm a part of all this beautiful creation that you made, and yet I look at myself and I think, no way. And the truth is, we could talk about this all day, the tendency that we have to simply believe things that are lies, that are not true about us, and then, in the, in the absence of feeling value, to try to spend the rest of our lives filling ourselves up with value in other ways. Not just through pleasures and things that we do, but through the things that we accomplish and the way that we try to be known in this world. We come with a void, and we then try to fill it by showing that we can justify our existence and who we are by how we look and the things that we do and the way that other people feel about us. And if enough people feel a certain way about me, then I can feel beautiful and I can feel significant again. And God looks at his creation, he looks at his children and he goes, you were wrong when you began thinking that you weren't valuable and you had to do something to make it that way. Now, this concept of creation and God himself making us is not at all new to the Jewish people who are hearing the gospel of John. He's writing to a group of people, many of them don't need anyone to convince them that they're God's people, that he made them, that he's the author of things. But there was also another group that was, that was hearing the gospel of John that was, that was there when this ministry was happening. And there were Greeks and there were people that were part of the Roman culture. And they believed that you couldn't just simply explain where everybody comes from by every different cultural group's origin story or myth, as they would often call it. They think, yeah, these people think we came from here. These people think we came from here. These people think they're God's chosen people. Big surprise there, right? And they act like it all the time, maybe. But what the Greek people did, what the people who were part of the Roman culture did was that they placed a value on something that they thought was even higher than just, I'm one of God's few chosen people. They believed when they looked out there, they said, we believe that there is some kind of an order to this world in which we live. There is, there is an order, there is a, there, is a, there is a reason to things. We see, we see direction, we see things that we can that we can agree on are universal. And when we look at those things, that's how we ought to try to understand the world we live in. What can we agree is inherently valuable, regardless of who you are, where you're from? What can we agree is right, regardless of who thinks it or who doesn't think it? And what John is saying to these people is he's saying that in the beginning, not only did God create, Not only did God create, but he says that creation was ordered because he said he created it using the word, the logos. And what that means is that God's creation is one that you can look at and you can actually see design. You can actually see order. You can see light and darkness, right and wrong, true and false, good and bad. You can see that in creation and that the Greeks who would read this would say, well, then if that's true, then I can see glimpses of this God in just the ordered nature of his creation. C.S. Lewis summed it up so well in Mere Christianity. He says, first, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. 
These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe that we live in. He's saying to us, this is this universal thing that we see. There seems to be a way that everything ought to be and that that seems to be transcendent from any one group of people and any one story about how they think we came about. But on top of that, we also recognize that while we can agree that there seems to be this universal way we ought to be, none of us are being it or doing it. And it's really hard. And what we see in the ministry of Jesus, and John is about to show us through what he does and what he says, is that this ministry starts all the way back in the beginning of creation, and that when creation happened that not only was there a God behind it who is our author, and all that that brings with it is true of us, but that there's actually an order to it, that there's a logic behind it, and that it's something that we can understand, and it's something that we can even live by and count on, and is consistent and doesn't change. And we wrestle with this idea. We wrestle with the idea that there are just ways things ought to be independent of how I feel or how you feel. Way back, way, way, way back in the 90s, way back when I was growing up, and I was in high school, I think, there was this story in the news about a young man who was an American student in Singapore, and he vandalized a car. He, like, keyed a bunch of cars. And they caught him, and they arrested him. And he was on trial as an American citizen in Singapore going to school. And they punished him. And the punishment that they gave him was caning, which is they use a cane, like a, like a metal, like a wood stick, and they hit him. We'll just say in the bottom, okay? And they, and they, and they sentenced him to six strikes from a cane, and everybody in America lost their minds over this, said this is unfair, unjust treatment of an American citizen for a nonviolent crime in which no one got hurt. And the Singapore people said, and the government said, this is, to be fair, this is how we punish our people too. We punish everybody like this. And they said, and we actually have a very low rate of crime when it comes to vandalism because of punishments like this. And the Americans like, we didn't know that. You know, the kid's like, I didn't know that. Can I just have a pass? And they were like, we'll give you four instead of six, is what they said. And they gave him four instead of six because the president of the United States, Bill Clinton, appealed to their government and said, please don't do this. It's, it's, it's undeserved. This isn't right is what we said. We told another country, this law, this rule, this way that you keep order is objectively wrong. You can't do it to our citizen. And they ended up giving him four. And it was, it was a very big deal back again, way back, way back, back, far, far, far back in the 90s. Centuries ago. Okay, sorry. So we read then that there is a man who is sent to testify that this light is coming. That, that something is coming, someone is coming into creation to make God's presence known. And it's, it's John the Baptist. But what we read about John the Baptist is that he comes and he has this ministry and he has this really incredible even beginning to his life. 
And we read that, that they come and they ask him again and again, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who was promised to come? Are you the one who's coming here to be the light? And he said again and again, no, not me. I'm not the light. He testifies to the light, but it's not me. Now, this thing that John does, a lot of commentators call, I think it's a great term, they call it voluntary obscurity. They say he, he makes himself as obscure, meaning as unseen as possible. He is, he is literally living out the most amazing, incredible ministry to people. And yet when people come to him and try to make it about him, he says, it's not about me, it's about someone who has yet to come, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, it's very hard to imagine this happening nowadays. It's hard to imagine somebody with a powerful ministry, with a, with a powerful ability to, to speak to people or to move people or to see miracles happen with people saying, no, it's not me, it's just Jesus who's going to come. If John the Baptist lived today, you can bet he would have some kind of a website, right? And he would have books and he would be very sought after on the speaking circuit and at conferences. And it would be like, have you heard about the ministry of John the Baptist? He's amazing. And what he said each and every time was, I don't want to hear you say the words, John the Baptist. I want you to know about Christ who's coming. This is one of the hardest things for people that do any kind of ministry is that your, your job and your calling is to constantly redirect people back to Jesus so that they walk out feeling like he is everything and that you've only helped them get to the point of realizing that. And John does this. He doesn't claim to be the one. Now, this is a break from the religious leaders that come before him. A religious person who is devoting themselves to this message of salvation and hope, and they're not taking glorification and credit for it. They're pointing to somebody else. Wait a second. He might actually believe this thing he's talking about. One of the other crazy things in the church is how easy it is for us to say things really big about Jesus, but to show the very opposite by the way we say them and the way we live those things out by trying to constantly gain attention for ourselves. And John doesn't do that. He comes to say that God is coming and he's going to make a way for his people. And so God then intends to disclose himself through the ministry of Jesus to show himself to people through Jesus's ministry, not just his words, his actions, every, every healing, every act of service, every act of mercy, every teaching, every word that he speaks, every miracle shows us God, shows us his heart. And we asked this question on Christmas Eve when we talked about John 1. We asked, why would God manifest himself in this way? Because we read that the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. He comes and lives as a person to dwell among us. Dwell translated means to set up a house and to live right next to somebody. He moves into the neighborhood uninvited and he, and he lives right there with us. So this is the way that the God who created the entire universe that is so big in scale and in scope, we cannot possibly even begin to describe it in a way that our brains can understand. And every time we think we understand it, it turns out it's like, you know, oh, there's, there's 10,000 new galaxies that were hiding behind that planet over there that we didn't know about. That the God who created all of that would choose to manifest himself so that he could be known by his people. And how does he do it? He becomes a person. That sounds pretty small scale. That sounds pretty easy to miss. Why? Why not the pillar of fire? Why not the volcano of glory or something? 
sure you can think of something even cooler than that. And it would be very clear to everybody the moment it happens, okay, this is real. This God is real. And what we talked about on Christmas Eve and why he had to come as a person, why he came even in a manger in such a humble way is because he is a God who says, you're my children. I want a relationship with you. And it's kind of hard to have a relationship with a pillar of fire. It's kind of hard to have a relationship with some volcano of glory or whatever we're calling it. But you have a relationship with a person. You get a sense of who God is when you get a sense of who Jesus is. And you watch him live his life. And you watch him do the things that he does. And so he comes and manifests himself in the flesh so that we could see in the flesh what it actually looks like to be for God and to be one of his children. And so he comes and he dwells with us, sets up residence, and he essentially does something that as much as we would like to think we would be so happy about, I don't know how comfortable we are with it. He comes and he invades our personal space. He comes in right next to us. In this whole universe, I thankfully think you can count being on earth as right next to us. And he invades the space that is very personal to us. We care a lot about personal space, especially in the West. I'm a big fan of personal space. I love personal space. I, 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 I am not a huge fan of public jacuzzis, okay? I don't like public jacuzzis. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of a jacuzzi. Don't get me wrong. I love a good jacuzzi. But do you guys call them jacuzzis? Spas. Hot, hot tubs? Hot tubs. That sounds kind of hot tub. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stick with jacuzzi. It's kind of gross, guys. It's okay, thank you. Thanks. Way, way back in the... No. Uh, they were hot tubs, yeah. I love, I love a good dip in a jacuzzi, but if I'm going to go in a public one, at any given moment, some stranger is going to walk up in their bathing suit and sit down in a jacuzzi with me and be five feet away from me, and all of a sudden, we're sharing this incredibly intimate moment together. Because I consider being in a jacuzzi to be a kind of an intimate thing. You know, I do it with close friends, you know, and we really get, you know, talk and everything. And then all of a sudden, here's a stranger. I don't like that very much. I don't want anyone coming. That's it, okay? I don't want anyone in there. Imagine how much stranger it would be if you were in a public swimming pool, and then somebody just jumps in and swims underwater and comes right up next to you. Like, hey, there's a whole pool here. We have this thing here called personal space. And it means I don't want you in my space. I want you over in your own space, right? You set up a bunch of lawn chairs, right? You lay down on one. Guess what? I want you to lay down on that one over there. I want to be careful how I communicate this. But ladies, you, I know that you don't like the line to the bathroom. I know that that stinks, okay? But at least that line is there because you have walls in between you, Okay? <laughs> Guys don't have that, okay? And there are rules that you are taught early on in society that keep us from total chaos, okay? And these rules dictate something very simple. If I walk into a bathroom and go over here and somebody else walks in and they stand next to me and they're all empty, that person is a psychopath. <laughs> and if they talk to me, I'm allowed to like... I'm allowed to put this person under citizen's arrest because it's clear to everybody 
that, that, they're, that, they're, that they're a psychopath, right? These are the rules that we have, and you learn them very early on, and you don't break them, okay? You don't break them. You don't break them, okay? Can't stress that enough, okay? We believe in that firmly here at OCEC, in those rules. And we get a, when we get a hot tub, we'll have that too. Have that rule too. Personal space is so important to us. And as much as we would like to think that we love being together and love being with people, we have a very small number of people that we really like being in close proximity to. And we want everyone else at a safe distance. I was talking to Ellie about this last night, and uh, she was sharing with me a diagram that people use when they're teaching students and children and people who are on the autistic spectrum how to have personal space. And I think it's really interesting because it's basically circles. And the inner circle is you. And then right outside of that is your family. These are the people that should be the closest to you in your personal space. So, so you can get this close to your family. That's okay. Your friends, you can maybe get that close to your friends. That's okay, right? But your acquaintances, let's stay maybe a good couple feet away, right? Acquaintances. And as, it, and as you go through, you realize this is the way the personal space works for us. It's inappropriate for us to get too close to the people that aren't as close as they ought to be to us in relationship. You have to earn it in a relationship with me before you're going to see it physically and how close we even will be with one another in proximity. This is the way that we work. This, is, this dictates like 90% of social interactions that we have in the Western world. Personal space is very important to us. And so as much as we would like to think that we would be so excited that the word would come in flesh and dwell among us, invading our personal space, the truth is for many of us, that's a little bit too close for comfort. And, and the way that Jesus is going to go about living his life and doing his ministry and showing us things is going to begin to make a lot of us very uncomfortable with how specific he's being about the way we are living as children of God. And as much as we would love to think that we would want for the God of the universe to come and dwell with us, that is presuming that we want him within our personal space and that we want to give it to him, that we see ourselves as his children and that place belongs to him. If you believe that he's the author of everything, then you believe that he knows everything about us. You believe that when something goes wrong, he's the one that could fix it. He's the one that knows what's even wrong to begin with. John's gospel is written to essentially two groups of people. There are two groups that have to wrestle with a gospel like this. One is the religious people. And for the religious people, it's not hard to believe in God. It's not hard to believe that he created everything. Many religious people grew up believing this their entire lives, have grown up believing this, and are very comfortable believing it. In fact, feel like it's really strange that somebody would look out at the world and would have even live even a day of life with other human beings and not see that there's a God who created it. And so those people, what we see right here in the beginning, in the beginning, the genesis of this story and everything is this. Is it possible that this, that this God that you have no problem believing in and this world that you have no problem seeing this way, that it's a little bit smaller than maybe it should be? That maybe 
because it's so easy for you to see God and to believe in him, that your God is like planet-sized God. And he's not universe-sized God. And what John's doing and he's showing the Jews is he's saying, this isn't just a God of one group of people. This isn't just a God who did this one thing over here. This isn't just a God who began existing when you began existing. This is a God who transcends everything you could possibly understand about space, physically, about time. And the more that we learn about the world and the reality in which we live, the bigger it seems to be and the more ordered it seems to be. And the more that points us to a God who is so massive in our minds that we ought to be humbled as we believe in him and see him. We say, I believe in the miracle that this God who is personal to me is so vast and so ancient that to believe that he could be personal with me absolutely blows my mind. The other group of people that John is writing this to is the non-religious people, the ones who, who don't believe, who, who think, yeah, every culture has got their story about how this all came about. Every group of people have some myth about where this all came from. And at some point, they all break down because they're not consistent. And what you don't see in them is you don't see the order that we see in the universe. You don't see the, the, the actual way that things in nature operate around us and the fact that you have to actually make sense on a philosophical level with things in order for them to actually be true. And for these people, what John's saying to them is he is saying that what you see in all of those things in the order and the logic and the way that everything is set up, he says, this is an indication to you of who God is. He says, we're not asking you to believe in a God that doesn't make sense. I'm asking you to believe in a God who does make sense. I'm not asking for you to believe in a world that doesn't make sense. That's not where the faith part comes in. Faith that Jesus asks us to have isn't in, isn't in believing in this kind of a world or even believing in this kind of a God. Faith comes in in how we respond to those things that we believe. And what we find is that even if we believe in God and even if we believe in this world being a certain way, we still struggle to actually live like we believe that because of the things that we face as we live in the flesh. The God that John talks about is not the God of mass child sacrifice. I just read an article this last week of, a, I believe somewhere possibly in Peru, uh, that a, another, another mass gravesite was found um, that indicated um, thousands of child sacrifices where the hearts were cut out of their bodies. This was a common thing in ancient cultures. Cultures in which people desperately wanted to please a god because of a, a flood or because of their crops or because of the weather that they were experiencing. And, and, and they had no really ordered way to understand how, this, how the forces around them could in any way be predictable or counted on and how you could possibly respond to them. And what John is showing us is that this is not that God. This is not a God that we have to wonder about and, and be confused about and feel like in all the bigness that we can never really know him. What John says is, for the size of the universe and the scope of creation, there is still a God who intends to be known. He intends to be known because these are his children. And he's manifesting himself in the flesh, and that's how you're going to know who he is. And as you listen to Jesus and you look at what he teaches... 
what you're going to see is you're going to see how much sense it actually makes when you observe the creation that you're living in. The way that we look at God, the way that we look at Jesus, determines everything about how we will take the gospel. The way that we view him in the beginning says everything about about our relationship with God and and even our understanding of him. Augustine said that uh, the gospel of John is such that it has the kind of depth that can drown an elephant, but that a child can wade in. And what that means is that it means the gospel of John is so simple that a child can understand it. But there is so much depth and beauty in the way that John explains the ministry of Jesus that we could swim in it for years and still not get all of it fully. And so I'm excited that we get to spend a long period of time doing that very thing. But we will never stop asking the question each week, if he is my author, if he is my father, and if he's come to invade my personal space, then will I let him or am I going to push him away? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your holiness And as we stand here and as we worship to you right now, God, my prayer is that we would get a sense of your absolute magnificence and your holiness, Lord. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to see how big you could be and are. Give us a glimpse of that as we worship you, God. That is why we worship you. That's why we sing more than one song at a time is because it actually takes us time to actually get to a point where we can even begin to really respond to you well. So help us take advantage of this time as we worship you, God. And our prayer is that, is that we would invite you in. We would not push you out, out where we keep an acquaintance, out where we keep a teacher, but that we would bring you close like we would a member of our family, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, there's no greater description of how we feel when we look upon you than we read in the Psalms. The psalmist asks, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Father, any time that we get even a glimpse of your creation as it really is intended to be, God, as we stand beneath the stars and look up at them, as we stare out at the beauty of what you have done and can do, Lord, the only right response to it is to immediately ask the question, who am I that you are mindful of me, that you love me and that you even care and know that I exist, God? We live in a world that believes that the size of our universe is proof that we do not mean anything. And yet we recognize that the very same universe is created by a God who says that mass and space and area and size and even age don't matter, Lord. That what matters is relationship. That that is what brings you glory and so we know as we look up 
at your beauty, God, and that we see that you care for us. God, we are just so grateful that as your people again and again and again, we come back to the same thing. We come back to truly just being grateful for what you've done for us, God. Father, it is a tragedy that there are so many people who do not know that you exist and who do not know that you are mindful of them. Help us have the words and to begin to take the steps and to begin to even just pray for the heart to reach them with this good, good news of what has already been done for us, God. Be with us this week. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.